0: What's up, 26ers? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I'm your host, Delisha. So happy to be back with you. We have another guest today, Larry Scott Blackman, Vice President of Public Affairs for Fresh Direct. I'm very excited for you to hear this conversation because Larry brings the greatest, most appropriate mix of inspiration and education from talking about his story of humble beginnings in public housing in the city of New York to rising through the ranks in both government and in corporate private sector. Now, if you want to hear an interesting story about coming from funk royalty to getting into the entertainment business, to making the switch to government and community activism, to now being in the corporate space and balancing a commitment to the community with career growth, this is the conversation for you. Please take a listen. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Larry, welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thank you. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm fantastic, too. With sunny. we are here in Fresh Direct's new offices. I love seeing works in progress and then coming back and seeing the final products. So products so you got to you got to have us come back when it's all set.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I will share the information for the ribbon cutting
0: once we're done. Got to be there. I'm, I'm going to get my photo op. That's for sure. Yes, indeed. But let's jump into it. Who is Larry Scott Blackman. Larry
1: Scott Blackman is a man who uh, was born in Harlem, New York, and drew Hamilton houses. Uh, My father lived on the ninth floor, and my mother lived on the 15th floor, and here I am. Wow. Uh, So uh, Harlemite, born and raised, uh, never left Harlem other than to go around the world and do certain things and go to school. Uh, Someone who is... uh, a tireless worker and really believes and fights for the community.
0: Well, I know you fight for the community because of the role that you have here at Fresh Direct. So I want to start there. Let's start at VP of Public Affairs. What does that look like for a major corporation?
1: So Fresh Direct is a company that uh, was founded about 15 years ago on the simple premise that people want uh, the best quality food at their convenience. Uh, We were sort of the first to market uh, online grocery delivery company. Mm -hmm. And the company expanded and grew uh, from modest beginnings uh, to now uh, doing quite well. We um, stretched from Connecticut all the way down to Washington, D.C., certain points in between Philadelphia, certain parts of Delaware, uh, elements of New Jersey, if Mm -hmm. you will. Uh, We serviced the five boroughs and beyond. And so about four years ago, the company made a strategic decision to expand and stay in New York. And they needed someone to come on and manage certain elements of that expansion. That included uh, representing... The company before government agencies, uh, working with the community, dealing with public relations, um, you know, navigating certain issues when they came up. And uh, through a friend of mine, uh, I was able to meet the CEO of the company and, you know, we hit it off uh, right after the word hello. And so... uh, After that moment, I've been here now for uh, four, approaching five years.
0: Awesome. So what made you decide that this was a role for you? Because you come from government, correct? Yes. So how did you decide to make that transition?
1: So you reach a point in... Those people who work in government reach a point in their careers where uh, sometimes the political winds may shift or you reach a point where you feel as though, you know, you have hit that ceiling, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I've always been someone who likes challenges. I like to take the position that may not be the popular position, but it's the right position and the position that is able to affect change. So I've taken some uh, some roles that some of my peers and colleagues may not have taken. And I've been able to, thankfully, with the help of good friends and good partners and just... People who um, sniff me and say that I passed the sniff test Mm -hmm. have been able to work with us to impact change in a positive fashion. And this position is one of those positions.
0: So what are some of the initiatives that you're working on right now?
1: We are, we built this facility here in the South Bronx. And the first thing was working with the community around this facility so that they can understand that much of what they probably heard was not true and build a coalition. So one of my first initiatives here was to build a uh, community advisory task force. For the company that met biannually around the construction of the project to assist with local hiring, to assist with recruitment. Uh, We have hired well over a thousand Bronxites at this site. If you take a look around and you walk around, you see people from the neighborhood and from the community who are receiving a chance at. You know, changing their lives. Not that their lives may have been bad, but an opportunity for steady employment with a company that provides you know benefits uh, and the the full nine. So um, that's one of the major projects was just navigating this. Um, Another project, again, is just managing uh, the relationship between the company and government on across multiple levels, whether it's the federal government, state, and local governments. I find myself oftentimes. on the 95 corridor, whether it be driving or whether it be on Amtrak, even this weekend, I'll have to fly down to uh, D.C. and turn around and come right back. So uh, I, I serve as representative of the company um, for a number of different endeavors.
0: Awesome. So I was just having a conversation earlier today about the changes, for lack of a better term that are happening in the Bronx. Folks are being priced out of mm-hmm. certain areas. Um we all we all know the revitalization that is this happening to certain neighborhoods, but I know my concern often and the concern of the locals who grew up here is are we going to be able to afford to stay, right. right? So how do you balance sort of the negative perception of companies and those with money for lack of a better term, moving into these areas, but also seeing the benefits and yet uplifting the community at the same time. How do you find that balance as someone who works in public affairs?
1: It's challenging. Now, you know, removing my fresh direct hat, I'm also someone who became civically involved Mm -hmm. in, in, in my community and ran for office. Right. And so these types of positions, these types of questions come up. And the way that I feel that you address that is, look, the the there are there's but so much that companies are able to do in a community right but the way that communities can fight gentrification, if you will, or fight, not necessarily fight, but embrace, right? Because change is going to come whether you like it or not. So you have an option. You can either embrace it and mold it, or you can wait for it to hit and be changed. Okay. And I remember years ago, when I first started in government, I'm talking about maybe 15 to 20 years ago, there were projects that were coming along. And I remember going to, you know, my grandfather sat on the corner of 144th and 8th Avenue. At the time, there was an old movie theater and certain other businesses. The movie theater was closed. A lot of it was abandoned. And I remember going there and telling them, hey guys, a Pathmark is coming here and this is going to be market rate housing and it's going to happen in three years. And those those old guys didn't listen to me because, you know, what does this kid know, right? right? But I'm literally in the room as the plans are being discussed. I'm literally there and I'm seeing it. And the unfortunate part is that most of the people who were Advising those plans, not necessarily in that case, but in other cases, we're not people who came from the community. Right. So when a community is not as informed about what's going to come, right, we often find ourselves behind the eight ball complaining that we are being gentrified. So it is incumbent upon people in the community to, to answer your question, to be civically involved, push their elected officials, and stay informed about what's happening so that you can effectively change change and minimize its
0: impact. I love that. So keeping with that theme, because I know for me, it's something that's always in my mind as someone who has a certain level of education, who has worked in certain circles. Right. It gives you access. But then you also have this backstory. Mm -hmm. Drew Hamilton houses, you know, what could be perceived as humble beginnings. Right. How do you stay grounded? Because I know for me, I'm always trying to make sure that people the people that I, I left behind, and you know that working class community doesn't see me as someone who's different and isn't reaching back. Right. So, how do you stay grounded while you climb the the ladder?
1: So, uh, my family, I still have family who live in public housing, mm-hmm. and if anyone knows anything about public housing, more often than not, there are families in public housing. Right. Absolutely. And my story is no different. Uh, also, my close circle of friends are people that I grew up with, and these are not people that you can you know, all of a sudden become high post with. Mm-hmm. These are people that will check you and they will say, hey, you know, you need to listen. You're doing too much of this or, you know, stay, keep your nose clean. Let us handle that stuff. Right. You keep doing this because you are representing us. And I've heard that conversation many a times. Uh, but the reality is that at that time, it was tough. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I lived in Drew Hamilton with my grandparents, my father was an, uh, is an entertainer and he was very much well off and could do anything in the world he wanted to do. Uh, but I stayed back. And so because of that, you know, I went through certain things in the building and in the neighborhood. And even now, you know, you still get some of that, but you never lose sight of where you came from. And I wouldn't trade that those days for anything else in the world. The, the, the friendships that I had growing up in the building and growing up in Harlem and in that community, you uh, you never lose sight of where you come from. Now, the challenge is as you move up the ladder, mm-hmm. you find yourself being alone more because there are very few people that you grow up with who can really understand what you're going through at that level. So the, another way to stay grounded is to make sure that when you're in those circles with your friends that you grew up with and sometimes that you long to reminisce for or certain things you, you like to reminisce about. You have to articulate your issues in a manner that everybody can understand Absolutely, so that they still feel like, you know what, we can still relate to him. He hasn't left us. And that's a that's a big enough challenge. And I can tell you, there's there's one guy that I grew up with who wound up working for this company in a different capacity. And I bumped into him and I didn't even know literally wow. same age different floors. I'm on 15. He's on 18. And 20 years later, you know, I'm here doing something and he says, Larry, and I look and it's him. So the the the, the key thing is just always stay humble, no Absolutely. matter what level of success you get. As long as you're humble, it's fine. But if you have that core group of people you grew up with, they will check you and let you know.
0: Trust me, I know because I got a few too.
1: Right. <laughs> and then even then, no matter what you do, some people are going to say that you've changed right. and you're not. You know, you're not down and, you know, you're high sedity and all of that stuff. So you just got to know that's just the nature of the game, I guess.
0: It surely is. You yeah. know, some people just can't get down with the ambition yeah. and trying to be all you can be. Yeah. But can we talk about your father sure. for a moment? Okay, so you are the son of an entertainer. Yes. Larry Ernest Blackman. Did I yes, get that correct? you
1: got that correct.
0: Funk legend. Yes. And frontman of Cameo.
1: Yes, you got it right. See, I am I always like interviewees that, that really do their work because someone— oh, Inexorably always says, Are you cameo son? And I'm like, No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> good job. No, no. I'm I'm a lawyer by trade. There you know, you go. we we, we dig into files, we dig into crates. Right. Now, That's I'm gonna get like super black for a second. Please do. For folks of color, we know cameo. Right. Every wedding, every party, mm-hmm. you know when word up or candy hits, mm-hmm. everybody's getting on the floor. Right. So when I learned that you're an heir, right, a direct heir of this artist, this formidable artist that's still touring, still making it happen. And then I hear your story that you were living in public housing. Right. How does that work? How does someone have a father who is such a successful entertainer and then they're back at home with the fam in the projects?
1: Well, he's from the projects, too. Mm -hmm. He's from that neighborhood. He cameo started in the basements of 141st Street between 7th and Lenox Avenue. My mother took out loans to help my dad, you know, when he went through hard times in the very beginning. And in fact, when I was born, I was at Harlem Hospital and my father was in uh, Canada playing. And the story is that um, before the group was named Cameo, it was named the New York City Players. It was Mm -hmm. named after the Ohio Players. But for obvious reasons, they couldn't keep the name Cameo. Uh, I'm sorry, they they couldn't keep the name... um, the New York City players, mm-hmm. they had to change it. So when I was born, my father actually flew down the next day. And for years, he always thought my birthday was one day later than it wow. actually was. <laughs> but everyone in the neighborhood knew him because he grew up there. And and his mother and my mother's mother, both my grandparents' side, both lived in the building. Wow! So uh, everyone knew who he was, and he didn't shy away from it. You know, when he had his Ferrari, he drove it right to Harlem. And we're talking about the middle of the crack era. Yeah, this is
0: not Harlem that we know now.
1: This is not the Whole Foods Harlem. (laughs) This is the Woolworth. You know, um, Mrs. T's used to be across the street. Um, You know, I can name some other stuff that none of the listeners would know. (laughs) But anyway, this was Harlem, Harlem, Harlem back in the day. Okay, so everyone knew him. And uh, everyone knew me, and everyone knew. family. Okay. So I was actually little Larry until I was about 21.
0: Is there anybody that still might call you that if they run into you? Oh, today? yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: Some of the people from Harlem, they like little Larry because they knew big Larry.
0: Got it. So when you have a father who's in the entertainment business, I mean, we see it all the time, these celebrity seeds, they ride that wave, Right. They, even if they have no discernible talent, which is not your story because mm-hmm. you are a musician as well. Yeah. Correct. What instruments yes. do you play?
1: I play drums, bass, keyboards, a uh, little bit of guitar, but mostly my, my three main instru- instruments are bass, guitar, drums and keyboards.
0: OK, so you play three instruments. Yeah. There is a lot you can do with that. What made you take a different path?
1: The f- Just fate and God. You know, I, I worked in the music industry yes. when I was in school. I came out and I went to work for I Own Black Music and EMI mm-hmm. Records. And I was on the promotion side and I never really wanted to do promotion. I always wanted to do production because I could hear I grew up in studios. I could hear every instrument and I hear music differently mm-hmm. than most folks, which is why I also DJ. Um, but I wound up in production. And I'm sorry, promotion. And I promoted Drew Hill. I promoted uh, D'Angelo. So there were like a couple of artists that were breaking at that time Mm -hmm. that I happened to like be right there as they broke.
0: And juggernaut artists. artists Yeah, they were big ones. Yeah.
1: And but there were about 10 or 15 small ones that no one ever really heard about. Because, you know, for every one major artist that breaks, the, the label has about 20 that fail. And that big one, believe it or not, is paying for the failures of those little ones, right? right? That's just the nature of the business. So long story short, wanted to get into production. Um, I decided I knew how to promote on my own. I had some independent contracts and a friend of mine was managing the campaign or the Northern Manhattan portion of Sea Virginia Fields. She was running for Manhattan Borough President. So I told her that I had started my own promotion company. And she said, well, why don't you come and help me promote this woman that's running for Manhattan Borough President? And she said, look, we don't have any money. Okay. Because Mm -hmm. frankly, most candidates of color have trouble raising money. Right. Okay. And... She said, uh, well, why don't you come and promote? And I did. And she won.
0: Wow. And
1: after she won, they came to me and said, would you like to join the staff? We would love to have you on the staff. I didn't know a thing about politics. I didn't know who my council member was. I didn't know. I barely knew who C. Virginia Fields was. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I took the job and um, the rest is history. I worked my way up.
0: Nice. So I know we have a a lot of listeners who were still in that millennial uh, age bracket. Yep. And, you know, we live in a day and age where someone's always asking you for a favor. Hook me up for exposure. Yep. Um, And it gets exhausting, right? Trying sure. to just help someone out else out for an opportunity. So what advice would you give to a younger listener who may be presented with something like this to do some work mm-hmm. pro bono, but could lead to something else? How do they assess whether it's worth it?
1: So what I would suggest is um, you have to have faith. You have to be able to see The the sunshine in the midst of rain. Right. Uh, One of the most transformative books I ever read when I was that millennial is a book by George Frazier entitled Successes in Our Race. And that book uh, taught me how to effectively network Mm -hmm. among us, how to talk to people, how to reach out. And so I started learning little things. Right. Like that just set me apart from everybody else. So for example, I would get a business card at an event and that next day, that person that person is getting a letter from me saying, it was a pleasure meeting you. I just wanted to make sure you have my contact information. Da, 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 da. And they, they receive that letter in the mail. We live in an age of email right. and fast and chat and everything, Snapchat, the whole deal. There's something special about somebody receiving a letter in the mail these days that indicates that it took you time to write it. Absolutely. Not to mention the fact that you prove that you can write. So long story short, there were little things that I did back then that you have to figure out in a very competitive society how to set yourself apart from everybody else. Because everybody's replaceable at some at some point, unless you work for yourself, mm-hmm. because only you know your true worth, right? So if you work for somebody else, then you have to do something that can that keeps you above everyone else you work with.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So talking a little bit more about your story, started in the music business, Mm -hmm. moved over to government. How did you climb the ranks?
1: I worked, I went to campaign school so I could learn how to campaign.
0: I didn't know there was such a thing as campaign there school.
1: There was. There was. Through the Democratic National Committee at that time, uh, there was a what was called the, the Brown Tully um, School for Campaigning. And it was an intensive one-week school that you can send, that people went to, and some people running for office sent their staff. And that's what happened to me. I went to campaign school, learned how to campaign learn campaign management one-on-one. And once you finish that course, then the DNC would offer jobs to you around the country. So I came back and I wound up working on uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign for Senate in 2000. I was in charge of Manhattan. And I'll never forget one of... Hillary Clinton's top advisors pulled me to the side uh, as we were getting out of a cab. And he said, listen, I want to let you know you're in charge of Manhattan. And he said, if Hillary Clinton's numbers go down, you better damn well move to New Jersey. (laughs) And her numbers went up. I mean, she won. Al Gore lost that year, but Mm -hmm. she won. And she won in Manhattan with great numbers. And that was in part... You know, I would like to think due to some of my some of my efforts coming out of that, you make a name for yourself and Mm -hmm. people see you. Uh, And I took a position not too long after that where my salary was just about tripled. Wow. Just coming off of that experience. Um, And I wound up working for folks. I worked uh, after 2001, you know, September 11th. That was actually Election Day in New York. And the candidate I was working for was based out of lower Manhattan. She was running for public advocate. And I was her de facto campaign manager. Mm -hmm. Her campaign manager and the candidate had a big falling out. I was deputy campaign manager. I wound up running the campaign, and so um, September 11th happened. We, our base was obliterated. We were—I literally saw the second plane hit the building. I was on the roof at uh, on Lafayette Street wow. because we were located downtown. And um, so after that, I went for a short time without a job. And and Senator Chuck Schumer heard about me, and I interviewed with his job. I went to his house and met with him. And the next thing you know. Um, I was working for Senator Schumer. So I'm one of the few people to work for both United States senators out of the same state.
0: Wow. So let's talk about what I find interesting about your story is you've had positions where it seems like you've had to grow into them. Right. Right. She was a little bit too big and you've got to grow into it. Did you ever have fear or concern that you wouldn't be able to deliver? Oh, absolutely. And how did you overcome that?
1: you have to start with an immense belief in yourself. If you don't believe in you, who else is going to believe in you? If you go into it with a defeatist attitude, then you're bound to lose. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, I used to tell people I would interview with, look, if I don't have the number, I'm one phone call away. Mm -hmm. I can get the job done. And, you know, I've been asked, well, wow, how could you do that? You know, I believe in myself, right? If there's a wall, I'm going to find a way to run through it. And so that's the the best advice that I can give.
0: Got it. So when you move in these circles, we all know politics is very well connected. There are right. a lot of political families. Right you know, and when you're coming in, you're a Black man. That's not a name known in politics, I presume, right? So right. where do you draw confidence from when you move into these new circles and you're, for lack of a better term, an outsider?
1: Right. So I had a number of people who were very helpful to me mm-hmm. and a number of people who gave me that advice. One of whom actually passed away. His name was Terrence Tobert. He was, he and I were very close and he actually ran the state of Nevada for Barack Obama when he won. Uh, Terrence passed two days before primary day. Wow. And And Barack Obama won the state of Nevada, right? Which was, it had not turned blue in years. And Terrence was a large part of that. So I had some good people who would help me along the way. My number one issue, uh, and even to this day, but my number one issue was my temper. I was known as having a hothead you know it was like once it set off i was gone and so in politics you have to you have to temper that so i had to work on me so to speak and thankfully i had people around who would say look they want you for that position but they're concerned that you're too much of a hothead or you know they think you're a little bit too emotional and so you take that feedback and you constantly have to work constantly have to read self help books i don't know how many john mitchell books um john marshall books i re- i read you know leadership 101 th- those types of books um you know Um, Freakonomics, those types of things I constantly try to learn. And I still do that to this day. And now I recommend it to my friends on Facebook. I'm like, hey, here's the book I'm reading this month. You need to do that. So going into unfamiliar territory requires you to have people around you who are real enough to tell you what you're doing wrong. You have to have the attitude and the temperament to listen to them and not take it personal. Um, One of my best friends, Uh, He and I do that all the time where we speak literally maybe five or six times a day and we'll call and he'll say, listen, Kat, here's where you were right and here's where you were wrong. Mm -hmm. Here's where you overstepped your bounds. And I say, you know what, I'm right and I apologize and I move on. Uh, That takes a certain amount of humility and you have to have people around you that you can do that with in order to be successful.
0: Absolutely. And you actually ran for a public office. Yes. So what spurred you to go from behind the scenes to the podium. My big mouth. <laughs> you can <laughs> talk. I mouth. definitely got that already. You I, was in
1: a, I was in a meeting with some major power brokers. Mm-hmm. All right. This is a true story. I was in a meeting at Sylvia's Restaurant with some major powerful people in the Black community. And they were talking about, you know, running for office and this, that, and the other. And I had gotten tired of it. I'm sitting there listening to these folks and I just blurted out. I stood up and said, you know what? If such and such doesn't run, then damn it, I'm going to run. I'm running. (laughs) And I sat down and that little voice in the back of my mind said, yeah, L, tell (laughs) them. And then three weeks later, that person said he wasn't running for office. And I'm like, oh man. Now you have to do it.
0: That's that New York swagger.
1: Yeah. It was all like machismo <laughs> and bravado and arrogance, like that alpha arrogance. I was like, you know what? If they don't do it, then damn it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I had the first phone call said, all right, what you going to do? And I called one of my best friends and I said, I want you to be my treasurer. Let's open up the business account and let's go. And I outraised everybody. How? a Short period of time.
0: How did you outraise everybody?
1: Well, you you got to know how to fundraise. Right. Mm -hmm. Fundraising is all. not only that, but you have to have people who believe in you. And that's why running for office again. You know, I don't see it in my future because Mm -hmm. I I love the friends and the brothers and the family I have. And I don't ever want to take advantage of them. So if I ask them for a dollar, I want them to know that it's going uh, to a good cause. Right. And thankfully, because I never asked anybody for anything. When I did, not only were people writing checks, but they were maxing out. They were writing big checks. And had I started a month earlier, I would have maxed out. And with the match and everything, you know, we raised close to 150,000 in eight weeks.
0: Wow. And I couldn't
1: believe it. And my treasurer told me on the phone, she said, Larry, you're, you're leading in fundraising, Larry. I was like, what? I didn't even know, you know, I would just, they would just tell me, go home and get on the phone and raise money. Mm -hmm. And so I was, and I learned from Chuck Schumer how to raise money. I used to watch him do it and he's one of the best at it. And I copied his technique, everything from kicking off my shoes and putting it on the table and (laughs) the whole look, the whole deal. I used to copy him and think I was him
0: and it worked. So listen, outside of kicking shoes off and putting your feet on the table, Mm -hmm. we also have a lot of listeners who are in entrepreneurship. I believe raising money, they're tools and tactics that cross over, whether you're raising it for politics, nonprofit, or for-profit entity, you're trying to go through your Series A round. So if somebody's like, I got this amazing idea or I want someone to invest in my brand, what tips do you have that you can give them to get that money out of someone else's wallet into their hands?
1: So in all seriousness, aside from, you know, putting the feet on the (laughs) table, you have to be able to explain to people, at least in my case, how I was going to win, right? You have to be able to articulate your vision. Mm -hmm. You have to have data and you have to have numbers to prove it. And I remember going to lunches with people, showing them the numbers, showing them where people were strong and where people were weak mm-hmm. weak, and what that opportunity was for me um, to navigate that space to win. And for me, you know, I had challenges with my petitions and, my, and staying on the ballot and that thwarted my momentum. And that's something I I accept responsibility for. Mm-hmm. No, You know, those were the, the the nights where I didn't sleep at all. Even when I was popping sleeping pills, I couldn't sleep because you know that had you done something a little bit better, the outcome would have been more favorable. Um, so the, the first tip I give to, you know, entrepreneurs that are listening mm-hmm. is make sure that you have your deck and everything ready. So, that when you ask someone for capital or for funding and they ask you, you know, what is the return? What is your vision? That you're able to properly articulate it mm-hmm. and you're able to have your documentation and everything backed up so that it is, you know, non refutable. No one can ever question your stuff if it's really tight. And uh, that's something that I use to this to this day. I'm president of the Harlem chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity. Mm -hmm. And we have our last meeting coming up before the summer break. And we have about six events that brothers wanted to do. And so I told everyone this past week, have all of your budgets airtight so that when we can we review them, they are Mm -hmm. thorough. And if they're not tight and it's not together, we're not doing it. And that's what I would suggest to everyone. Uh, my brother recently moved and he said, Larry, I want to open up a fish, uh, a, a, a fish market. You know, I want to do fish and chips. And I said, OK, well, what, where's your business plan? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'm going to buy my fish from Stop and Shop. And this I talked to the guys at ShopRite or something like that. And I said, well, how? You know, that's not a that's not a plan. OK, so my first tip to everyone is, one, develop an, a watertight plan, mm-hmm. be able be ready to address any question because whether you're asking for $2,000 or $20 million, you're going to get asked the same question from people um, and you need to be able to answer those questions.
0: Awesome. Now, I brought this conversation, uh, this top topic of conversation up with our previous interviewee, Greg Bishop, right. about the disparities. There are significant disparities in terms of access to capital for people of color right. and the the majority. right? Yep. So even with that, there are people who are heat, will hear this interview and everything you just said and, and say, you know what, I still have unique challenges because I'm a black man or I'm a black woman. When people see me, there's an automatic air of mistrust um, that what I'm doing does not have validity and it's not going to work. Do you think that's true? Do you think that there is something we have to overcome as people of color? Absolutely. And how do we do that? Outside of just airtight, all of that, do you think it's staying within our own communities or do we go out there and try to get money from other folks
1: too? Well, I mean, look, one, I, it'd be foolish for me to think that I had the answer, mm-hmm. uh, but I can certainly, my, you know, my opinion on this is that we are certainly at a disadvantage, mm-hmm. particularly if you take a look at what's happening around the country today. Uh, the number of men of color being killed, right? Um, you know, just certain incidents, the way things are happening. Um, you know, we've, this is something that we have seen before mm-hmm. and history tends to repeat itself. So... You know, my suggestion is that we as a people have to do have to do more to make sure that we are tight with our thing. So to to quote James Brown. Right. So whatever your thing is, let me give you an example. You know, I, I one of the many jobs I've had is that I have been an adjunct professor at Metropolitan College of New York and I taught government affairs and nonprofit marketing and management. One of the things I used to tell my students is that if you know that you have to be somewhere at nine o'clock, you need to be there at 845, mm-hmm. right? That you need to get up and you need to read every newspaper. I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, the Daily News, the New York Post, the Washington Post, uh, the Philadelphia um, Inquirer, Inquirer mm-hmm. Um New York Times, you name it. I subscribe to all of them. And in the morning, I get up. I get up at about a quarter to six every morning and I peruse them so that when I walk into this office, I know what's happening in the world. And Mm -hmm. if there's an article that could remotely impact us, then I'm sending an email out to my team member saying, hey, this was in today's Washington Post. We need to know about this. This is what's going on. Here's a legislative alert right? I'll send out a legislative alert. Here's what's happening, this that, and the other. And those are the types of things that we need to do. We need to be a step ahead or two ahead of our competitors across the board, particularly people of color. That means that you go to work. Look, my, my father danced with a red cup with his back hurting, with, you know, these guys literally dancing on stage to the point where they had to come off and get oxygen like football players. Mm-hmm. And So my thing is, do you think you're going to outwork me, given that that's what I grew up with? Right. There's no room for excuses when it comes to people of color. And we have to recognize the greatness that lies within us. We excel at making lemonade out of lemons. Absolutely. And in today's society, there's a lot of lemons out here. And we we need to take that and make it happen in spite of all of the challenges. And I'll say this last thing, you know. People of color, as I mentioned earlier, particularly Black men, are under attack. And it's incumbent upon us not to give people bullets to shoot us with. Mm -hmm. And that's across the board. But that's a topic for another podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we could do a whole (laughs) separate episode on that. Right. So you talked about starting your day at quarter to six. I'm big on regimen and discipline. So that's the start. We now know how you get going. But what does the rest of your day look like?
1: Wow. So uh, out the door by eight. Uh, And it depends on the day, any given day. I could be somewhere else. Uh, There's a number of different roles that I have outside of this office at Fresh Direct. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, putting out fires here or starting fires here, uh, organizing certain things. Uh, Outside of that, uh, I am uh, a member of the Parliamentarians of New York. So I help teach parliamentary procedure to people, Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, I'm a member of 100 Black Men of New York. Uh, Prince Hall Masons. I'm a what's called a past master, which is a past president of your lodge. Mm-hmm. I'm also in the Eastern Star. I'm involved in my community. I don't know how I wound up in all of these organizations, but and on any given day, I could be doing certain things and very active in my church as well. So uh, it, you know, it winds up sometimes becoming a bit much, but with organization, you can manage it.
0: Got it. Now I want to talk about that a little bit more because I know you're the real deal. I, I talked oh, to enough I people. I've got enough alphas in the circle that, nice. you know, when people mention Larry's name, it's like, oh, Larry is the man. He gets oh, it done. No, right? you're being too, too kind. So it's one thing to have titles and be involved on paper. And it's another thing to be an active member and contributor of certain causes and organizations and initiatives. So how do you not only remain organized, but give in a way that matters with meaning. How do you make that happen without spreading yourself too thin?
1: It's uh, it is. That's a very good question, and I don't know a, a direct answer. Mm-hmm. I can just tell you that going back to, you know, you, for example, saying that you have your believing regimen, mm-hmm. right? So am I. So I find that in the mornings between 530 or 6 and 7.30 is when I'm the most productive outside of my work responsibilities. So if those, if there's emails that need to go out, uh, I do it and I maximize every minute, right? So, you know, if I'm in the bathroom or something, I'm text messaging 10 people, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if I am on the train, I'm setting up a group message that's going out to 10 or 15 people or very well could be responding to one. Then, you know, with technology these days, there really isn't an excuse, I use certain tools, right? Any.do, okay? Any, A-N-Y dot D-O is a great task um, organizing tool that I use online. And every day I wake up, I may take a look at it and it'll pop up on my phone and say, you have five tasks for today. Okay. And I'll handle those. But uh, there's a book that talks about execution. I think it's called The, the Four Styles of Execution. Mm-hmm. And what, what gets most people is not the task that you prepared for, it's, the 100 little mosquitoes that come in every day right. that you that you didn't expect. Right. Those are the things that throw you off course. So that's how I, I try to uh, I try to maximize my time.
0: Awesome. And whose story do you draw inspiration from?
1: I draw my inspiration from musicians.
0: I'm a I'm a certified music head. So really? I'm,
1: I'm glad. To hear Who, that. Who's your favorite <laughs> artist?
0: It is. I can never answer just one. It depends okay. on the day. Um, but I'm a huge Donny Hathaway fan. Nice, nice. And I, I often start the debate: If Donny were still with us today, would we be having the Stevie versus Donny conversation? Because I, I think that Donny, I'm just gonna say it, would have been a formidable opponent for the crown. Oh, against Stevie Wonder. I'm just gonna put that out there. And I love Stevie. Right. But if he had right. the catalog, if right. he was with us long enough enough to, to have that, that deep catalog, right. I think he would have been a front
1: runner. Yeah, I think, you know, look, I think one can certainly make that case. I uh, I draw my inspiration from my number one favorite artist of all time, and anyone will tell you this, is James Brown. Okay. Because James was the, the band leader. He went through several, like if you look at what happened with him, he went through several different um, iterations of his career where he had to change himself and he did it effectively. Uh, He inspired, you know, R&B and music. He was able to take jazz and his gospel and make funk and R&B out of that. And so between James Brown, Prince, and um, I would say Michael Jackson, you know, but definitely James Brown and Prince, number one, they're both tied for number one. And uh, it's only because of the work ethic Mm -hmm. and the attention to detail and never really the drive for perfection. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm so not there yet. You know, I know where I want to be, and I'm not there. But you know, to the to the millennials listening, as you get, take care of your bodies because as you get older, it gets harder. Right. Right. Things get stiff. It gets it gets tougher. And I used to. Do some dancing and some crazy stuff. I took tap back in the day with Savion Glover.
0: Really, Sabian bringing the noise, I, bringing the Savion and I
1: were in the same tap class. Wow! So I used to take tap, j- jazz, and ballet. I used to do all types of stuff and house head. And boy, when you get older, your body—you <laughs> pay for all that jumping up and hitting the floor and all of that stuff. So,
0: do you have any moves left, though?
1: Oh, I can move with the best of them. <laughs> I can get it in.
0: Well, let's talk about, I want to go back to James for a second because now this is going to show you that I'm not just saying I'm a music head, like I study. Okay. One of my favorite James Brown stories is James' lawyer, longtime lawyer, was plucked. He worked in like banking or something. Yep. Someone came to him and said, James wants to do a deal, needs a lawyer. This young guy comes in, you know, takes the terms of the deal, which for the time, this we're talking like the 60s maybe, right. was outrageous. James wanted his name on a plane, all these things. The whole deal, yep. Lawyer goes in, negotiate the terms. And of the, 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 the suits on the other side said, I'm sorry, we, we cannot meet those demands. Lawyer gets up, walks out, has no idea what he's doing. They chase him down, and said, Wait, wait, you know, the, the the classic running out of the room, right. right? They meet these demands. Then when there's a press conference about it and James is announcing this collaboration he has with this company, he says, And I wanna thank my attorney and names this guy who's a nobody in the business. And not only did he do that, but walks off the stage and gives him an envelope with the check for six figures in it. Right. And that launched this this man's entertainment law career. Willie Nelson came calling in and what have you. So one of the things that I respect about James Brown, in addition to his work ethic, his activism, et cetera, is his ability to acknowledge his people and take care of them. Right. And I think that's something that is lacking in a lot of our communities today, like, you know, we we're always like on social media trying to show who we know and who we're aligned with. But behind the scenes, making sure that they feel appreciated and that when you're reaping uh, the benefit of the spoils, that yeah. you're also sharing that. Do you think we, we're missing some of that camaraderie and like long term loyalty that we used to have back? Oh, in
1: absolutely. I mean, I think in today's society, um, you know, loyalty is something that's not that's not as cherished. When I went to work for Mike Bloomberg, I worked on his campaign. I had never been in that world. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one of the things, you know, I went to work and the person that hired me was actually one of Mike's top advisors, pr- one of the people closest to him. And he brought me in and he said, listen, you're on board. It was my first day. He said, but I need to pull you in with someone else. And he brought me into a room with another person who was you know, the mayor's right hand, next person. She looked me in my eye and said, you know, Mike believes in loyalty. And and if you do the job and you're loyal to Mike, Mike will always be loyal to you. And to this day, to this day, we've all remained close because I was loyal to that man. He won. He always took care of me and my family. And above that, Certain things that I would ask, certain things that we would try to, you know, certain things that happen in the community where community groups needed help, you know, to, to Mayor's credit, he did things that he didn't want people to know he was doing. Mm-hmm. But because people like me and others said, hey, you know, this is a great cause. This group really needs help. He, they would make things happen. Right. So loyalty is something that obviously you do want to, that you do want to have. And it's certainly missing. And one, again, drawing inspiration one of the things James Brown used to say is kill him and leave.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Never be normal, right? I, I have a good relationship with Reverend Sharpton. And Reverend Sharpton used to tell me these stories because Reverend Sharpton worked for James Brown. And James Brown was the surrogate father that Reverend Sharpton didn't have because his father left. And James Brown's son, Teddy, died in an automobile accident upstate in 1974. So it worked out that the two of them, you know, Reverend Sharpton sort of replaced Teddy and James replaced his father. So there's one story where James went to perform in Zaire to fight for Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. And James put on a Lifetime show, and, and you can find clips of this. It was just, they were in Africa, and you could just see that there was just something, It was a higher power involved in what they were doing. And so after the show, Charles Bobbitt, which was James Brown's manager, went to him and said, Listen, um, President Mobutu wants you to come to the palace, and he has uh, some gold and some other things for you. And James Brown looked at him and said, No, get the plane ready. We're going to the airport, and we're going back to America right now. Wow. And Mr. Bobbitt said, well, why? And he said, you always got to kill him and leave. You always make him want more. Never be normal. Wow. Never be that normal person. And I have always taken that. No matter what role I have, my goal is to kill him and leave. Never be normal Try not to hang out. Try not to be that guy that you find in the hotel lobby, right? Mm -hmm. Be the guy that goes up, kills him, and then leaves and make people say the next time, hey, man, wow, that guy, who was that? Because that way you're always wanted. Right. So I just share one of my intimate tips. Um, hopefully too many people don't listen to that.
0: we are going to see, man. No, know, I'm I'm no, I'm
1: joking. No, I'm joking.
0: Okay. So if someone's listening to this, they're going to hear your story and say, man, son of an entertainer, carved out his own lane, has gone from one amazing opportunity to another, peak to peak to peak to peak. And we all know that we we all have valley experiences, no matter how successful you've been, no matter what your story looks like on paper. So can you describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day? Sure.
1: And I can tell you the time where I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day was And this, you know, I'll I'll give you two really quick. But the first one was when my grandfather passed Mm -hmm. because he was the patriarch of the family. And at that moment, I remember getting up, going to the podium and looking out and looking in the audience. And you could see everyone saying, what are you going to say? Like Mm -hmm. you could see the look on everyone's face. And at that moment, you tell yourself you have to be extraordinary. Right. You have to be, you can't go up here and break down. Now is not the time for breaking down. You have to be the strong one, right? So that was definitely one moment where uh, where that had to happen. And another moment was uh, I was in high school. I had gotten suspended for fighting, believe it or not. That hot hit. <laughs> and they were going to kick me out of school. And my grandmother came to the school. And thank God for Mr. Wells, my guidance counselor. He comes in the room. He tells my grandmother, he's like, look, Miss Scott, they want to kick him out. But I think he's a good kid. So in order for him to stay, he's going to have to recite Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, Be the Best, from memory, in front of the entire school over a two-day period. Or if he doesn't do that, he's out. This was my second school I had transferred to. I went to Rice 1st didn't like it, and then went to campus. And so when he said that, I looked at my grandmother and my grandmother's got her bag. I'm in high school, she's got her bag and she's pulling out belts and chains, (laughs) nunchucks. (laughs) Like, what is gonna be? I said, all right, all right, I'll do it. So I walked to 125th Street. There was a record store named Shizulu Record Shack. Okay, it was on 125th and that was the only place I knew. This was before the internet. So this is the only place I knew where, who might have recordings,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? So I go there, lo and behold, Because Be the Best wasn't a popular speech. They had a cassette tape of it. I was suspended for the week anyway, so I had time to to listen. And I wrote it down, and I learned it, learned, and learned it. So I come back, and on an ordinary day, I channeled my best Martin Luther King, and I remember it to this day. If you can't be a bush, be a tree. If you can't be a doctor, be a lawyer. If you're going to sweep streets, sweep streets so well that the whole neighborhood says, "There goes a street sweeper who did his job well." That being extraordinary, that one opportunity that that guidance counselor gave me changed my life. I wound up tearing it down. The of course. entire audience, like the auditorium, went crazy. I got all the girls after it. It was a good day. <laughs> See,
0: there's nothing wrong with bonus, you know. Getting a, a few numbers you know, after. Thank,
1: thank you, Dr. King. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's a good one. We like levity on the December 26th yes, broadcast. So anyway, do you have any regrets?
1: I have no regrets. If you live life with regrets, then you aren't living.
0: Agreed. All lessons. I always say no regrets. All there you lessons. go. No regrets. So what's next for you?
1: I have no idea. You know, when you find out, let me know. You know, I'm <laughs> going. No, I No, Seriously, I, I wrote a book. I okay. co-authored a book with uh, twenty other, nineteen other African American men, and Is the name it out of the yet? book. It's actually just now coming out. Okay. I'm receiving the first copies this week, and I'll let you guys know when I do the ribbon, the um, book signing. Because um, I'm going to do several of them. Mm-hmm. But it's it's called Suited for Success, and it's uh, just like your podcast, right? Like taking success tips for success from African-American men who overcame the odds. And there's 19 of us. The gentleman who put it together is this gentleman by the name of P.K. Kersey, who runs an organization that takes suits from people who may have outgrown them or Mm -hmm. slightly worn suits and gives them to the less fortunate. And uh, I was a... A professor, one of the people in that program who told him about me and I was asked to be a part of it. So the book is coming out. I have the first copies coming. Uh, my father and I are working on a book together. Wow. Uh, we have a title. I'm not going to share the title, but it's very, very good. You're going to love it when it comes out. And we started working on that. And I'm actually learning things about my family that I didn't even know. And through through that process. Uh, and I'm also looking to do some documentaries and some other things. So, um, um, you know, I think the future is bright. I just, you know, when I get bored, I think of five or six other things to do.
0: So it sounds like you're gonna have a few more hats that you're gonna throw on as well. Come back,
1: come back in a year or two, <laughs> and let's see, let's see what I'm doing.
0: And where can people find you online?
1: So people can find me. I'm on Instagram, uh, Funky Holomite. I'm on Twitter, it's the same, Funky Holomite. Uh, Facebook. Um, you know, you can follow me, uh, reach out, and uh, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity. Um, let me just tell you that I am. Totally blessed and honored to have been even mentioned by you guys for, you know, coming on. And it's something I won't forget, and I will always be in debt to you for it.
0: Well, we are very grateful when you are a pillar of the community, an activist and a businessman who takes time out of a busy day to come on with us. We are utmost appre- we have the utmost appreciation for that. So I don't thank think you. you're
1: talking about me, you know, because <laughs> it must be somebody else in the room, <laughs> somebody Listen. under the table or something, but it damn sure ain't me.
0: If we don't big ourselves up, who's going to do it?
1: Listen, um, everybody can and should be an activist, mm-hmm. right? activism is the little small thing. So just by you taking time to hear my story, I appreciate
0: it. Awesome. Now, speaking of hearing, is there anywhere we can hear you, DJ?
1: Wow. You know, I'm sort of an old school traditionalist Mm -hmm. in that I don't put my stuff up on SoundCloud. Uh, You have to reach out to me and I can send something to you. Uh, I think music should be free because it's, you know, it's one of God's gifts, right? God gives you the, you know, unless, you know, you compose something, but, um, you know, I have DJed everywhere mm-hmm. in New York. You name it. 4040 to Red Rooster to you know, you name it. Taj, all the hot spots I've done. So, hopefully your listeners will catch me out there. My DJ name is Dynamite Black.
0: Dynamite Black. So, you heard it here. He's got some stuff in the crates and the vaults that maybe you can get your hands on if yes, you indeed. reach out to Larry Funky Harlemite on yes. social media. Make sure you go follow him, check out his stuff, follow the initiatives that he has going on both from a corporate perspective and in the community. We thank you so much for checking this interview out. And don't forget to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening, you for listening to the December 26er, December 26-er podcast. 26-er. I am your host, host Delicia. This, this episode was produced, was produced by, Demarcus by Demarcus Edisa, and music set. was the provided by Tholbo. You can find you can us find on us Twitter, on Instagram, and Instagram Facebook, Facebook at December 26er. 26-er. That's December That's 26ER. 26-er.